This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The self-actualizing man, not as an ordinary man with something added, but rather as the ordinary man with nothing taken away. The average man is a human being with dampened and inhibited powers. Valeria interviews Roman Gelperin. He is the author of The Mastermind of the Self-Actualizing Person, The Life and Legacy of Abraham Maslow, and My Sudden Awakening into Self-Actualization, and five other titles. Roman Gelperin injured his back lifting weights when he was 20. He spent the next year unable to walk and in searing nerve pain all of his waking hours. And it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Having lost his physical health, he achieved perfect psychological health. What the psychologist Abraham Maslow called self-actualization. Through deep introspection, he resolved all of his psychological problems. And since then, he has been writing books on the different insights this has provided him into human psychology. Roman is the author of six self-published nonfiction books addressing different facets of psychological health. They are Addiction, Procrastination, and Laziness, A Proactive Guide to the Psychology of Motivation, and It Was All Your Fault, Unraveling the Inner Psychology of Depression, How It Begins, and What Cures It, Self-Actualization by Poker, The Path from Categorical Learning to Free Thinking, The Mastermind of the Self-Actualizing Person, The Life and Legacy of Abraham Maslow, and My Sudden Awakening into Self-Actualization, On Rotting Prison Straw, The Self-Actualization of Alexander Solzenheisen, and To Set a Soul of Fire, The Life and Psychology of Anne Rand. Roman Gelperin works as a full-time Montessori teacher for preschool children ages 3 to 6. Roman has a BA in psychology from Stony Brook University. He was a research assistant at Dr. Ellen Langer's Harvard Mindfulness Lab. He is a member of Mensa with a top 99th percentile IQ. He is a Zendo-trained psychedelic peer support specialist and has twice worked at a Zendo volunteer providing peer support at Burning Man and similar festivals. Roman is 33 and lives in the Boston area. Meet Roman at romangelperin.com and linkedin.com slash in slash romangelperin. Here's the interview with Roman Gelperin. In your own words, who is Roman Gelperin? Roman Gelperin is a Russian Jew who grew up in Brooklyn, New York after his parents emigrated from Russia when he was five, who um, largely squandered his childhood as a result of very poor public education, mainly, who achieved 
enlightenment at the age of 20, shortly after injuring his spine, and who now, who, who after that spent about a decade being a full-time writer, uh, formulating his insights into what he learned from his sudden enlightenment and his squandered childhood in six, six different books already. And now is, uh, works full-time at a Montessori school for children age zero to six to see how enlightenment psychology could be extended to children as young, well, from, very, from, very, from their very birth. And I'm only writing part-time. Mm, how wonderful. What's not to love about that introduction alone? So which opens the mind and kind of puts my mind in the, in the place of a curiosity. Although I have some information about you, but for the audience, I guess the first question that comes to mind is, what is your description, definition of enlightenment? What is enlightenment? I like the term self-actualization for enlightenment because self-actualization is a specific kind of enlightenment, which is also the one that I reached. And this was a term that Abraham Maslow, the great humanistic psychologist of the 20th century, he coined the term self-actualization to mean basically as a secular term for a specific kind of enlightenment. And in 1950, he identified, he identified what he called the personality type of the self-actualizing person. Basically, the person who had uh, reached, the, reached the pinnacle of human psychological health, like the most psychologically healthy person. So when I talk about enlightenment, it basically consists of three things. One is being completely at peace with oneself, having no internal conflicts. The second is uh, being a scientific thinker in every area of life. So most people are not, are, don't think scientifically whatsoever about anything. I mean, for most of human history, people have not taught scientifically, and now only a tiny fraction of people do. And it isn't something that comes naturally to us. It's something that has to be discovered or learned. And what's unique about these self-actualizing people is that they're able to think scientifically about pretty much anything they put their mind to. Some people today, maybe like the scientists, they could think scientifically about their profession, about physics, about biology, if they're physicists or biologists, about their professional sphere, but they're very unscientific and take, take uh, like book learning, follow what they're told in their textbooks, in their Bibles, in their, by their religion, by their tradition, rather than thinking for themselves in, in their relationships, in their when they think about their internal states. So they might be scientific about one area of life and very unscientific about, well, how to live and conduct oneself in the world. But with self-actualizing people, this particular type of enlightened human being uh, all possesses, they're able to think scientifically about literally everything, which is a very rare trait. And the third big trait of these self-actualizing people is that they are, they have a, a sacred to them mission or purpose in life which they are pursuing successfully. And, and in doing so, they are living their life to the fullest. They are actualizing their fullest potential. And doing so successfully brings them into a state of existential ecstasy. It puts them in a, like an, a, an altered, higher, ecstatic state of consciousness. So that's kind of what these people look like. They're, they're extremely rigorous scientific thinkers who have no internal conflicts, and they live life usually in a state of elevated ecstasy most of the time because of their pursuit of some sacred mission to them. 
Wow, I can relate to some of that. So talk to me about thinking scientifically. That really caught my attention. So what would that look like from the perspective of, let's say, a mother, you know, just an ordinary person who has done a lot of um, the spiritual work and they, they actually believe that they have reached enlightenment, but they have no interest in, in the sense of being known, get to put themselves out there to, to get their mission, sacred mission known. So they, they just love being a parent, a mother, per se. So what would that look like? How would the person think scientifically within the realm of the family life? Uh, yeah, so for a mother, anyone thinking scientifically looks the same. It is basically the method of thinking. So there, there's a term in philosophy Epistemology, it is the, one of the two basic branches of philosophy. And epistemology basically means method of thinking, how people acquire and organize their knowledge. And how a scientific thinker acquires and organizes knowledge is that the very foundation of knowledge that trumps all other, all other forms of knowledge is the direct, one's direct firsthand experience, the evidence of one's senses and one's observations of the world. So... For a mother, for example, uh, if she was a scientific thinker, whatever she reads in books about raising her child, whatever, however her religion tells her to raise her child, however her tradition, like her mother raised her and her grandmother, have beliefs about raising ch children, all of that does not, does not trump her own independent firsthand experience with raising children and the conclusions she reaches from it. So basically, scientific thinking is the fundamental starting point of all knowledge is your direct first-hand experience. And then you reason from the foundation of that experience and the conclusions you form doing that trump all second-hand forms of knowledge from books, teachers, traditions, religions, or hearsay. Mm, yes, yes, you answered my question. Yes, yeah, that really, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So we, we in a way, we become our own scientist, we are, which is basically the exploration of truth, isn't it? We are trying to, as you said, from experience to know what is true. Yeah, that, wow, that just makes so much sense to me. Another question for you, Roman, is about this, the idea of getting to this state suddenly or reaching it by going through a process, learned process. So how do you see that? That's one of the topics, how human beings can achieve it. So in your case, it was spontaneous. It just happened suddenly. And for some people, it happens. So, but how does it become, how can you make this a process? What would that look like? Although I have an idea, I want to hear from you. I mean, that's what most of my books have been about. The past, my last three books have been biographies of people who fit this description of this particular kind of enlightened person. And what my books show is that there is basically just one path to achieve it. That every single one of the people who have achieved this state, or not quite this state, this way of being, have done it in a very worked out way. And just, it keeps showing up again and again. So basically, there's a sequence. And it, it centers around three funda fundamental transformative experiences that all these people have. So the first one is that every single one of these people have discovered what I call, have had the experience of the discovery of free thinking, meaning they learn how to think scientifically at some point in their lives. They, it's usually a completely transformative experience. 
they all have this moment where like, where they realize, oh, this is what it truly means to think for myself. And it's usually a moment of absolute ecstasy in which their whole lives change because once when your fundamental method of thinking changes, everything about how you lead life changes. So these people discovered the fundamental method of thinking scientifically, objectively about everything in the universe, about anything they put their mind to. So that's one experience they have and all of them have it. The second one is how they free themselves from internal conflicts. And that is basically, they all have this experience. Yeah, they all have this experience in which they, in which the only way to free yourself of internal conflicts, basically, is to work through all your internal conflicts one by one. So an internal conflict is, is like something like, I did something 10 years ago, the way I broke up with my girlfriend, or I said something mean to my mother, and it bothers you to this day. Something like that. Internal conflicts could be from your past, your memories, from your future, like your plans for the future are causing you trouble. From the present, your current state is causing you psychological distress. So there's only one way to rid yourself of internal conflicts, and it's to address them one by one and resolve them. And the interesting thing about self-actualizing people is that they do this in a very quick amount of time. What they do is they apply the scientific method of thinking, which they're able to apply to all areas of life, and they apply it to their own internal psychology. And whereas in therapy, people spend decades sitting on a therapist's couch and trying to address their internal conflicts one by one. And after a few decades, they've got a moderate level of success at it. What differs in these self-actualizing people is that for them, it is an incredibly quick process. They sort through all their internal conflicts in a matter of months. And, and they do it ecstatically. It is like an absolute adventurous journey for them to dive into their own minds and suddenly resolve themselves to become absolutely, yeah, absolutely at peace with themselves. So that is very unique. And the third experience they have is that they have to discover their sacred purpose in life. Something that they're willing to devote their entire lives to and, and that brings them you know, a state of, an ecstatic state of consciousness if they successfully pursue it. So those three experiences, the discovery of free thinking or scientific thinking, applying that scientific thinking to their own internal psychology and resolving all their uh, inner conflicts, and then the discovery of their sacred purpose in life. Those are, those are the three crucial steps that every self-actualizing person their experiences. There are three crucial experiences that every person that reaches self-actualization must go through in order to achieve this particular kind of enlightenment. But in your case, Roman, I know in the book you describe that. So but talk to me for a moment about that, how it was, it happened suddenly. So you had the experience of feeling free already in the sense that freedom was already there. And then from there, it unfolded, right? It expanded into the other areas in your life. So I'm wondering what makes one human being to have those experiences, which they call also spiritual, mystical experiences, to have them. And some of us um, needed to actually put a lot of work into it and go into processes. So what makes one like you different from all these other people who have to work on and go through the process? Yeah, so my enlightenment or self-actualization did happen very suddenly. It, didn't, it wasn't like a one-day mm. shift, yeah. but right. I went through all those steps in a very short order. So I had been a professional poker player or semi-professional before my great 
enlightenment experience before I injured my back. And through that, I learned how to think scientifically about poker and pretty much nothing else. Then shortly after injuring my spine, I was in incredible pain for like a year. I could barely walk without searing nerve pain. And by the end of that, when, it started, when I started to recover, that launched me into a state of pure ecstasy because I write about this in many of my books as a common thing that happens. I call it the rebirth experience, which basically is a person after a serious illness, injury, or tragedy, things like cancer, things like maybe getting into a serious car accident, breaking all the bones in their body. If they manage to live through that and survive it, then all of existence becomes sheer bliss for them. And that happened to me. And as existence suddenly became sheer bliss, I was suddenly able to expand my scientific method of thinking that applied only to poker to all of reality. And very shortly thereafter, I applied it to my own internal world. And in a matter of months, I did resolve all my own internal conflicts and achieve that complete inner peace with myself. And shortly after that, I did discover my mission, my sacred mission in life, which in a pretty common way, it's basic. The formula for this is if you undergo a period of great suffering and then you find a way to overcome it, your mission in life typically becomes, and this happens to just tons of people, typically becomes to bring that same solution to others. So having resolved all the psychological conflicts I had from my bad childhood and adolescence, and reach enlightenment, my purpose in life became to enlighten others who are suffering from that same thing. I have a very good answer for this. The thing that leads to these peak experiences, this mystic experience, this ecstatic state of consciousness, it could pretty much be boiled down to one thing. It is always some momentous positive gain in your life that uh, forces you to reconstruct that that force you to reconstruct your entire worldview. So you have some, mm -hmm. you have some understanding of reality and then something so good happens to you that you have to restructure your entire understanding of, of reality, of existence in order to accommodate this amazing new thing. So mm -hmm. your yeah. spine healing after, after making you a miserable cripple for a year, that is an amazing new happening that you have to restructure your whole understanding of yourself, the world, your past, and your future to accommodate. Thing, things like giving birth to your first child often bring on these ecstatic peak experiences. Things like, things like ha making your first real friend or being accepted into community for the first time or an intellectual realization about like how political systems work or, or how my friend had a great experience about how how uh, thermodynamics worked. And he had this amazing peak experience when he learned about thermodynamics in, uh, in chemistry. So that's basically the formula. You, may, you discover something amazing about the world and then it launches you into this ecstatic state of consciousness as a way to rearrange your understanding of existence to accommodate that. And this, th that is, I think, actually why that state exists because that is the perfect state to restructure your whole understanding of the world. It makes you dispassionate and detached toward your own knowledge and allows you to, mm -hmm. usually people are very resistant to changing their worldview, mm -hmm. except during yeah. such peak experiences where they're actually ecstatic to, they're ecstatic and extremely eager to restructure how they view the world around this new experience. So. Ah, what's not to love about that? Being open, right, to what it could be like. 
right? There's something to me in universal intelligence or really the, the definition of intelligence being connected to openness, to in being willing to change and transform and all that. So you mentioned this perfect psychological health state, but I guess the question that comes to me is, does it mean that you and those who have realized enlightenment will become self-realized? Do they lead perfect lives? Would that, it, what would that look like, perfection? Well, for a while, they at least feel like they do. It is always possible to make mistakes. And it was always possible after achieving this enlightenment to suffer new psychological injuries, for example. And this does happen. And then these people might be thrown into a period of depression or a period of not full psychological health. But generally what it looks like is that the self-actualizing person is completely at peace with himself, meaning he has no psychological distress from the contents of his own psyche. Mm -hmm. And he lives most of his mm -hmm. life in an ecstatic state of consciousness. So he is not only free of the negative side of, of poor psychological health, but he has the benefit of the positive side, the sheer joy of existence from positive psychological health. So his, the, the main, what, what uh, is the main selling point of self-actualization is that is the, it is the most optimal, highest state of psychological well-being that is also stable long-term. So people who do narcotics, for example, they might feel better during the time they're on their drugs for what, eight hours or however long it lasts than the self-actualizing person might feel. But then there's a real negative side to doing narcotics. Or manic depressive people, they also, they might feel so amazing that they feel better than the self-actualizing person does during their manic phases. But then they crash into suicidal depression. So the self-actualizing person has this optimal state of psychological being with, that lasts not as like a day, not even a few months, that lasts usually years or decades. And that has no negative backlash as a result of it, which is why it's so remarkable. Yes. I love the way you say that, the, you use the term self-actualizing, so I-N-G, as in continuation. So you actually, you don't use, you don't use in the past tense. Is, is there a reason, am I understanding this correctly, that it's almost continuous mm -hmm. process, ongoing uh, thing? Well, Yes. I like that term more because it isn't a permanent state that once reached, it could very definitely be lost. However, I still sometimes do use the term self-actualized, which is a perfectly valid term for people who st spend the majority of a or a large portion of their lives self-actualizing or continuing that state. So you could call somebody a self-actualized person, meaning someone who spent the majority of his existence in this state of enlightenment, which is perfectly fine. But I do prefer self-actualizing to emphasize that it isn't permanent and you constantly have to be living in accordance, be living your life in accordance with the principles of enlightenment in order to maintain it. Right. Yeah. That really resonates with me too. Another question is about psychedelics. I know you mentioned many ways of reaching this the state of enlightenment or get, getting some glimpse of the principles. So would psychedelics help as well? Is that another means? I reached enlightenment long before I ever tried psychedelics. And usually the state has nothing to do with psychedelics. And it, what, what these self-actualized people are in 
is the natural altered state of consciousness, which is the natural higher state of consciousness, which the clinical term for it is hypomania. But it is this higher expanded state of consciousness, which makes you, your thoughts faster, it makes you more creative. It makes you detached from your attachment to your own knowledge, to your own. Oh, it makes you like a Buddha, basically. It's the Buddha mind. And this, and this has absolutely trumped any psychedelics I've ever done since I started trying them from at about age 27. And I achieved my self-actualization about age 20. And yeah, psychedelics last for a day. And the experiences you could have in them can be actually much more intense than the experiences you have for self-actualization. But I've actually, fa- well, I've personally found it to be a poor substitute because yeah. this higher state of consciousness and self-actualization, again, could last years or decades. And it's a continuous state. You don't have to return back to your ordinary state of consciousness and, and analyze, well, what the hell happened to me on those five grams of mushrooms or wherever it is you took. So, but psychedelics, psychedelics are, I think, are absolutely fantastic tools for for the improvement of psychological health. People benefit drastically from them. I, I know many people who do. And they are not mutually exclusive from self-actualization. I know, I know one man, actually, who is this fascinating character, Rick Doblin. He's the CEO of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And he is both self-actualizing and also has done and continues to do a lot of psychedelics. So those two things are not mutually exclusive, but I personally, I personally think, but I, I can't say whether the psychedelics help self-actualization or not, but I think people very much achieve self-actualization without the use of psychedelics. And what, what psychedelics help people achieve is a, usually a huge gain in psychological health, but I don't know if psychedelics alone are a very good path toward, toward self-actualization. Yes, fair enough. And I, I do understand your point. My own perspective on, not enlightenment, for some reason I don't use the term enlightenment or self-actualization. It's, to me, it's more freedom. I'm interested in truth and truth is connected to freedom. So it's, it's actually the same when we're just using words and concepts with language. But for me, what really gets uh, let's say, gives me this, this static sense of joy, of peace, of being present, doing the work I do, and, and even when I think about the future, which I don't often do, is uh, thinking about the, the freedom that I already am. So it always goes back to fundamental truth and ideas that might sound abstract for some people, but it's very real to me that this, whatever this is, which I call life and this embodiment that I possess here, it's already complete. It's already whole. It has everything. It's already everything that it needs to be. So I don't really, for some reason, I try not to kind of attach myself or, or I hold on too tightly to something else that could help me to get to where I want to be because I come from a place of truth, fundamental truth that I already am what I'm looking for. So would that somehow people who like me, who, who perhaps think that way, that they are already what they are looking for, is that a, or would you say that this is the basis that could be a foundation for 
uh, let's say, doing great things, as, as you call it, free thinking and pursuing sacred missions in life and thinking scientifically, resolving all conflicts. Would that be something that would relate to that, what you speak of? Well, that's certainly one of the characteristics of self-actualizing people, is that they do feel that way. They do feel like their life is going as well as it possibly could be. That they, I mean, they're often ambitious, but they are absolutely fundamentally in every way satisfied with their lives. Like I've mm. met people who've, yeah. who've told me, these self-actualizing people who've told me, if I was to die next next month or next week, I thought to myself, what should I change about how I'm living? And, and the answer is, well, nothing. I should be doing exactly what I'm doing anyway, even if I was to die tomorrow, a week from now, at any time, because this is <laughs> yeah. exactly what I should, how I should be living. And as for how cultivating that state, and I think it's a valuable thing to cultivate, how cultivating that state without uh, without the other qualities of self-actualization, whether that's whether that's uh, beneficial to achieving enlightenment, I, well, yes, I would say, of course it is. It's one of the it's one of the traits of the enlightened person, and being that way could certainly lead you to also discover your mission in life. Actually, I think it does, and it could lead you. I think that state of not needing improvement could actually lead people to great improvement and to do great things. It's Yes, I agree. Uh, yes, that's it. Wow, I love your clarity in that. Yes, <laughs> that leads right, right, right. For some reason, it's been my path, if I can call it a path. It's a pathless path. So, yes, so that's that's so wonderful to hear. In a way, not looking for confirmation, but I love when I can hear the truth from some other people <laughs> that I don't know, really. <laughs> like, ah, that gets me going. So let's see, question, I have this question here. It's an open question about freedom. So with that in mind, we've been talking about self-actualization, enlightenment, and then, you know, I just brought it in my perspective of already being, feeling whole here now, there's nothing missing. So what would you label, classify as freedom? What is freedom to you? Well, I usually think of freedom in a political context about which I think that freedom in a political context means freedom from physical coercion, freedom from other people violently coercing you to do things against your will. That's how I view freedom. And any other kind of freedom is, is very secondary. As long as other people are not violently interfering with you pursuing your goals, that's, that's the optimal level of freedom. Ah, that's interesting, right? So you don't have a concept of freedom within the experience of self self actualization. You 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 don't have that, do you? I mean, that's you use that word freedom in a different sense, like freedom from internal conflicts. Yeah, that's inner right, freedom. Yeah, right, right, right. That's not in a political context. That's in a psychological context. Right, uh, free thinking. Yeah, you do use the word free quite a lot. Yeah. Yes, free thinking, freedom from having your knowledge constrained by the words of others. Ah, yeah, that's a big one. What about spirituality, Roman? Do you consider all this, which you speak of, spiritual? Or you don't use that term? Well, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an okay term. I think self-actualizing people are extremely spiritual people. I like the definition of spiritual as, uh, as uh, that which relates to consciousness. 
So a spiritual person is somebody who's curious about and interested in the workings of his own consciousness and his own inner life. So like a person who's only concerned with the external world and, and doesn't introspect much or look, look into their internal world and doesn't consider important, that's not a very spiritual person. A spiritual person is one who explores and, and dives into their internal world and, and is curious about what's there. I mean, that's, that's my definition of spirituality. Mm, yes, a billion yes to that. <laughs> yes. So another question is about your books. You have six of them. If somebody who is listening is trying to get to know more about your work and more clarity around the, the topic of self-actualization, what book would you recommend them to read first? Uh, well, I would definitely recommend my fourth book, which is my, I think, my foundational work and uh, my favorite of all the books I wrote. It's, the title is The Mastermind of the Self-Actualizing Person. It lays out Maslow's theory of self-actualization along with my own experience of it and basically breaks down what self-actualization is, how to achieve it, and why. Right. Yes. I I had... Thank you for sending me a copy. I did take a look at it. I'm not linear in any way. So I know a lot of people sometimes they say, you know, the, I recommend you to read the book page by page, one by one in sequence. For some reason, I have a hard time doing that pretty much with anything. In a way, it feels like all over the place, but it's not. I know what I'm looking for in a way. I saw something that caught my attention in your book. You said, to be hurt by words of others, I concluded, was a sure sign of the disease. So I know you, you quite a lot use the, the term disease for ways of thinking that are kind of opposed free thinking. So talk to me about this specific passage about being hurt by words, taking things, whatever it is personally. That book explores my own psychological development. And during the time of my self-actualization, my psychological development included opposing self-actualization with the absence of it. So the, the self-actualizing person was the natural human being as he was supposed to be. And everyone who falls short of self-actualization, that's how I conceived of the time, is diseased, is diseased in some way. And the disease was in their method of thinking, in their in the philosophical term epistemology, meaning they don't think for themselves, they don't base their knowledge on their own firsthand experience and reasoning from that experience, but they base their thinking on accepting the words of others as truth which supersedes your own, your own experience and judgment. And that I, I identified as being an enormous source of, of malaise in the world, enormous source of people failing to live up to their fullest potential, failing to self-actualize, failing to achieve psychological health, failing at almost anything. And that was my concept at the time. Now it's a little bit reversed in that self-actualizing people aren't necessarily the natural human beings. It takes a lot of effort and work and, and development in order to achieve self-actualization. Yeah. And the disease is more like the default method of thinking that people will acquire by default if they don't learn to think scientifically, don't learn to think firsthand independently for themselves. That is how people have thought for all of the centuries before science was invented. So, so it's more like what I used to call the disease, which is secondhand thinking, 
was uh, more like the default condition of man, and self-actualization is overcoming it. So, and at, at toward the end of the end of my book, I I do say that that I've had this switch of the paradigm where where I thought the self-actualizing person was a natural human being as he was supposed to be, and every everything that falls short of it was was a socially acquired disease. And later, I'm like, well, actually, self-actualization requires a lot of development and and just years and decades of work on oneself. So it's more like people start at that stage of not really knowing how to think scientifically. And then to transcend that, people have to really have a lot of resources and develop personal development in order to become self-actualized. So it flipped. Yes, yes. You see, I love that too about being open, you see, because we are not fixed on anything. It's always, you see, that's the mind of a scientist. He's always looking for truth, ways of seeing whatever it is with clarity. It's just being open to whatever life brings to you as an experience or what somebody would say even. I do follow signs though, because I don't see myself being separate from life. I'm life itself. I, I often say that, you know, I don't have a life. I am life. So I'm always kind of listening to other people because every, everything is life. So to, to give me some signs, almost like in a sense of a confirmation of, for what I already know. So that's being open, but in a sense, open to match what's already here. But then sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. That's how I also know that th there's need for more exploration in the realm of learning new things or maybe learning to do the same things in a different way. So with that in mind, Roman, are you also a coach? Are you planning to offer, let's say, courses or anything like that? At the moment, I am not doing life coaching, but I plan to within the year. But for now, I am part-time writing and full-time working, educating children age zero to six. Yeah, how wonderful. I, and I do want to ask a question about that too. So with the children that you teach, are you actually t teaching self-actualization? <laughs> Some of the, the processes of that? Well, interesting though. So I'm a Montessori educator and Maria Montessori was this, she had this own, her own type of enlightenment. I would, I would probably consider her a self-actualizing person and her philosophy and her method of education, the Montessori method, is perfectly in line with the philosophy of self-actualization. She explicitly based her method of pedagogy on helping children achieve their fullest human potential. And that's what, that's what, uh, everything, everything about her method, everything about her philosophy of the child, of the human being, of society, that's what it's all built around is how to bring out, bring out the, make the child into the best or set up the conditions so the child becomes the best possible adult in the future. And that's, and that is the philosophy of self-actualization, the philosophy of actualizing your highest human potential. So I, it's a perfect synergy. Ah, yes. Yeah. Speaking of that kind of connection, right? With others, other people's truths that somehow matches ours in a different way, but it does. That's beautiful to know. Another question is about, well, let's say that came to mind. How do we know, how do you know, or parents would know when their children are actually already expressing some of the signs of a, a self-actualizing person, you know, the beginning signs per se? Well, that's actually very hard to say. That's one of the things I am I'm hoping to learn in my journey of educating children, such as what exactly, what 
what like psychological nutrients do children need and at what ages in order to in order to achieve self-actualization in adulthood. You can't really talk about self-actualization until way past adolescence. So the ability of thinking scientifically can constitutionally cannot emerge in human beings before they're age twelve or something, in which in which the brain finally reaches last state of stage of development of formal abstract thinking, without which without which uh, scientific thinking, free thinking is just impossible. But but in, in terms of self-actualization being a process, so in terms of it meaning living your life to the fullest, the kids in a proper Montessori environment, by that definition, are self-actualizing. They are living their best possible lives because the educational method allows them to use their current abilities to learn and expand themselves, expand their areas of competence to grow psychologically. And as long as they're doing that, they are... By the, by that sense of the word, they are self-actualizing, and as, and the rough approximation I have now is that that is that is a great preparation for the kind of self-actualization Maslow described in adulthood, but I'm not exactly fully sure how in in what way, but I think I think living your life your best possible life early is definitely beneficial for achieving full psychological health and the highest state of enlightenment later in life. Yes. Yeah. That resonates true to me. So you are on to something, that's for sure, <laughs> doing what you do. Thank you so much, Roman, for your presence, um, wow, for everything, for sharing this deep wisdom in your own experience. I really love that too. It, it brings us, it's very relatable when we read a book that it's, it has the author's first-hand experience and you're not really shy about, you know, showing all the nuances of that experience. Sometimes it's not easy to do that. But coming from where you come from, of course, I, I, can, I can tell that it's not as challenging as it could be for most people. So thank you so much for being you. I really appreciate what you're doing. It's beautiful. Thank you. So I'll have your website and LinkedIn. I have the, the, your LinkedIn also uh, handle here. So those two will be on the podcast notes. I'll have your books too, the author author's uh, book page um, on Amazon that will be clickable. And uh, where to go from here? I guess I usually ask these ending questions to all my guests. But before I ask you that question to you, I will come to me. Do you have, is there anything that you left unsaid? Anything that you'd like to, to share that maybe uh, answer a question I didn't ask? Well, just to get, get a good tidbit in there. So Abraham Maslow wrote about self-actualizing people. He identified them as a distinct personality type. And then as to how they become that way, he basically wrote, well, that's a research problem in itself. <laughs> and studying, and studying the lives of self-actualizing people and compare, comparing their lives and seeing, well, how do they become this way? And my work is a, is a building upon Maslow's work and a continuation of, of his amazing insights in doing exactly that. My last three books and Later, fourth one, they're part of a series of four biographies in which I do exactly that. I very minutely and rigorously trace the exact life experiences and, and uh, the exact trajectory of how real self-actualizing people achieve this. And 
yeah, it shows what I said. It shows that it, it happens through a handful of, of breakthrough psychological experiences that transform everything about their lives. And it's usually the same handful of four or five different experiences. So that's, that's the main thrust of my work, showing how people achieve this enlightened personality type that Maslow described. Yes, yes, that's very helpful to have an idea. So I wish to have you working on or writing about people who are not known. Perhaps that will give, you know, most people, let's say the ordinary people, the openness and the the curiosity or the encouragement to kind of go on this journey of becoming self-actualizing. I think most people that you have written about, they are known people. They kind of have done extraordinary things. Maybe one day, but... One one reason I chose these absolutely extraordinary people, well, one of them was Maslow himself. That's how he identified this personality type. He had it. I chose absolutely extraordinary people to make the point that like this particular personality type, this kind of aligned person is actually disproportionately responsible for some of the greatest achievements in all human history. So these aren't just people who are having the best possible experience of living long term, but they are also achieving things from which humanity benefits permanently in absolutely extravagant ways forever after. Mm, yes. Ah, so you're showing the big picture, right? Of the what you call sacred having a sacred purpose, right? A mission. Engaging in that. Ah, that's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Now I, I see it. I see the big picture much better. Thank you for clarifying. So my last question to you, Roman, is about love. What is your understanding and idea of love? Mm. Well, working with children, I see it (laughs) constantly every day. Children are born and very shortly thereafter, they develop the capacity to love. And children love very easily and very intensely. Initially, they love their parents and that's how they survive. They absolutely lavish all possible love and affection on their caregivers and Ideally, the caregivers at least care for them, if not care for them well, <laughs> which happens. And then as, they, as people grow up, their ability to love kind of wanes. Like the three, four-year-old child will say he loves everybody in the class and every teacher and, and everyone's just absolutely like, I love you, is thrown around the classroom all the time. Then people grow a little older and that recedes. And then love is reserved for one of two domains, your romantic partner or the universe as a whole. And that love for the universe as a whole, the love of all sheer existence, which is an altered state in itself, it, uh, it most closely resembles that form of child love for everything in which you are in love with all of existence and therefore everything that presents itself to you is, a, is something you, you feel love toward. So... Love's a very interesting thing in human beings. It's, it has very many modalities, including like when Jesus talked about love, he talked about love for the, all the universe. That's beautiful too. <laughs> what's not, ah, what's not amazing about this? <laughs> everything, it just resonates with the heart, body, and, and mind and everything. It's just my entire being becomes very much in alignment as soon as I hear those words. Yes, the love for humanity, the love for it all. I love how you reference children with that. So having the the child's mind, right? Ah, thank you so much, Roman. I love the wisdom that you share. I, I was about to say your wisdom, but 
in a way that's universal wisdom that you're allowing to flow through you. So thank you so much for being open. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh, so before we say goodbye, uh, let's see. I mentioned the website and LinkedIn. Are you on any other social media platform, Instagram, Facebook, or? I mean, all my social media handles are just my name without spaces, but I don't heavily use social media. So the best way to learn about me is to see my Amazon page with all my books or go to my website, romangilfriend.com. Okay, wonderful. I'll have that there. Thank you so much again for your presence and we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Roman. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Roman Gelprin and his work, please visit romangelprin.com and linkedin.com slash in slash Roman Gelprin. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.